never get enough of that theme song. It's great. Uh, the French horn. It's really fr- good. Uh, d- always got to have the yes. French horn. Yes. It's a beautiful we, theme. We are back. And welcome to Behind the Lens. It is Monday, January 26, 2015. I can't believe a, n- a month is almost gone. Yes. Yeah. And of course, rejoining me, my co-host, Greg, is here. Have you, I, I've seen only good movies this month. Which is weird. I don't know. I don't know if you can. You've seen a couple of bad movies, but mainly it's been a really good month for films. You know that old adage of January is you know that's the seller. That's where you dump everything. Yeah, the trash movies. Okay, Gone are the days of the divide. Mm, You think so? Gone are the days. I I'm hoping. Paddington or Paddington Bear. I love that movie. Is Paddington? And of course, last week uh, Chad was here, and we were talking about Paddington, and uh, some of my exclusive with Paul King, and the importance of color in storytelling. Nice, nice. So, but we've got a lot of good stuff to talk about today too, and I think today it's going to be we're going to have a musical theme for part of the day, and then a very socially responsible theme director Dion taylor will be joining us he will be calling in live at 11 30 for the second half of our program um his, his de- movie is pretty good <laughs> quite his, quite good his debut film supremacy it the world premiere was at la film festival mm. uh in june 2014 it was one of my must-see picks it was actually oh, wow. my top pick of the festival um, I was once again lucky enough to be the first person to review it, uh, and that's saying a lot. So you watched actually a lot of films during that fest. Oh, yeah. I watched even before the fest last June with regular screenings and the fest. I screened 147 films in one month. Wow, I don't see the I don't see 147 films in five years. So that's <laughs> you. That's a pretty good record. <laughs> But so to make the top, that's saying a lot about the film. For and yeah. at LA Film Festival, that's so it's so important, uh, especially for these first-time filmmakers, for these indie filmmakers, that they get coverage, they get exposure, and they get valuable input. And I just I adore Dion. I have gone on part of this journey with him with Supremacy. Mm-hmm. I predicted then it would have a distribution deal quickly. It was picked up before the end of the year. Wow. And it hits theaters this coming Friday. So Dion will be talking about that, about supremacy, stars Danny Glover, and it's based on a true story, which is one of the most frightening aspects of it. In today's society and climate, I think it's very applicable. Hard-hitting is a very underrated (laughs) way to describe the film. I I think so. Uh, We had the premiere the other night, and I moderated the Q&A afterwards, and I even... Before we went into the Q&A, I told everybody, breathe. Just take a moment, sit, and breathe. Because right. I think have you having seen it, it's that kind of film. Yeah, I would have hyperventilated right after this. It's a powerful, powerful yeah. film. Yeah. So. But we have a few, a couple lighter films to talk about to start off today. Yeah. One that I know you have a lot to say about, Song One. Song One. I, it's on, it opened on Friday, and it's on VOD as well. Right. I believe so. So, song one, I think just whether or not you love the drama, I did. The music is fantastic. Like I said, we're going for yeah. a musical so, theme this musical first theme half today. The first half. So, we're covering good films in this uh, show. But one of the yeah. great things about song one is that stars Anne Hathaway, but Anne Hathaway also is producing song one. Yeah. It's her first uh, wearing, it's her first producer's hat. And it's not a vanity project because 
no. w- when you watch Song One, she's kind of even though she is technically the lead, mm-hmm. the actual lead is the narrative and most importantly the music. The music is the thing that really tells the story. Mm-hmm. And the filmmaker as well. A very personal story for her. Because so. this is... And the music here, it was custom written for the film. Yeah. Uh, you and I both had the opportunity to talk to the uh, songwriters, Jenny Lewis and Jonathan Rice. Very talented. And yeah. we've got some great interview excerpts uh, with them. But first, I had a chance to ask Anne about being a producer and how that producing... Is that affecting her, how she looks at other projects now? And here's what she had to say. And now that that you do have a producer's hat, Mm -hmm. does this impact how you look at projects now when they come across your desk? Even even just scripts as an actress, is that producer's hat and that eye adding another level to the look that you're taking at something? Well... I've been an actress for 15 years, and I've produced exactly one film, so I can't say that I is all that developed yet, <laughs> if I'm just keeping it real. But, uh, no, it just makes me feel that much m- more empathy when I come across, like, a battle scene for, like, the producer that has to wrangle everybody. <laughs> and it makes me all that more determined to never be late and to always thank everybody for everything and never take anything for granted because that was one of the big awakenings that I had as a producer on this movie was just how sports. I was as an actor for all those years and didn't fully appreciate how many people, how much work so many people had to do in order for me to do my job. Um, I thought that I was appreciative of it, but I really didn't actually understand anything that was going on. Yeah, and a testament to Anne as a producer and her husband, Adam Schulman. Um, this film it debuted at Sundance last year. It was snatched up, and here it is in theaters a, a year later. Yeah, it's it's just a really introspective drama with all the music and it the thing i really love about the film is that i've never actually spent a lot of time in brooklyn so it gives a very it's a very heartbreaking film in many ways but it's also the filmmaker's version or vision of how she sees brooklyn at night through music through people random people connecting Mm. through song and and actually through tragedy so it's quite a sublime film and you had a chance to ask her about that experience you know i have this vision you know i about New York and L.A., how people who live in New York are just a little bit more artistic than L.A., than Angelinos, and Angelinos are more about, you know, making money and, and um, you know, the the cottage inter- industry of filmmaking. But, but maybe I, I asked her, is it true or not? But, and here's her answer to that. I, I don't live in New York anymore. And I'm, I left New York after, I made a, made this film, and then I came out to L.A. to do Interstellar, and then I went back to New York to make a film called The Intern, and my husband and I decided that we were going to leave New York around that time. And so I live in L.A. now. L.A. was an industry town for me until I made friends, and that took a really long time to kind of find my group, and now that I have it, it's not an industry town. I have a wonderful and vibrant life out here. I came out here for the first time in 1999. The museum scene was good but small now the museum scene is has expanded and is great and it's not new york in terms of the culture but i mean there's so many things to do here don't underestimate the value of never being cold that really is so awesome (laughs) i love that about la and i love being able to hike whenever i want and it's different i think where people stumble is in trying to compare the two they're two different planets and I think that they actually complement each other, but they're so different. It, I, I would never dream of comparing them. Well, and that's something that I found really interesting 
when she she kicked it off saying, well, until I found a set of friends. Can you ever imagine Anne Hathaway not having a set of friends? Yeah, you know, no. First of all, no. But I think to her point, I don't know if you agree with this. It's it's hard finding that tribe mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. But what I guess once you do find that tribe, it's it's a whole different kind of energy. So, but I've never lived in New York for an extended time, and I've always fantasized about you know how filmmakers make it shooting around the area and what kind of industry lies in New York, whether it's film, television, or music. But you gave a pretty good answer. Well, and we're going to jump around a little bit here because Dion Taylor is on the line oh. now. So is that my friend Dion Taylor? Hey, it's me. How you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm here. Greg is here. Hello. Greg, how you doing, man? Good, man. I just saw your film. Oh, man. I'm happy you've seen it. <laughs> Did you like it? I loved it. I <laughs> I really, really loved it. Really loved it. So Awesome, man. That's, that's great to hear on a Monday morning, man. <laughs> well, so how excited are you for the film to open this coming Friday, Dion? Um, I'll tell you how happy I am. I'm walking through the airport smiling and people are like what is wrong with him <laughs> that's, that's how i'm like i'm grinning ear to ear they're like hey what is wrong with this dude i'm like is he crazy and i'm like no i'm just happy i'm 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 so excited and um i don't really have any words to say how i feel based on the fact that you know as a filmmaker independent filmmaker you you get an opportunity to make a movie and you work your butt off and you try to make something really cool that you really, really like. And you hope that people respond to it. And um, because you don't know if you'll ever get another opportunity. And uh, for me, I'm very excited. I'm very excited because we were able to make a cool movie and people are responding. Well, and I'm one of the lucky ones. I got to be there at the beginning for the even before it premiered at LAFF. You are the first person, and you know I love you to death, and I met you, and you sat down with me, and I remember the first thing you said to me, you said, you have an amazing movie, and you're going to have a very, very successful career, and you almost made me cry, but that's what you do, <laughs> and uh, I have been a fan of you forever, and, I, and you have no idea what your words meant to me when you said that to me, because at that time... I had just finished Supremacy, uh, had just got it into the festival, and and I didn't know if I was going to be able to make another movie. So I I really, really, really love you a lot. Thank you for that. Uh, And you're going to make me cry. Just a a curious question. Your your drama is is multi-layered, and when it premiered last June at uh, the fest, did you have more time to edit, or was it your final cut a year ago? Or did did that final year give you more, more room to breathe and shape the film? No, that was it. I didn't have any more money. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was it. Like, what, what you saw is what you got. Like, we couldn't go back into... I, I had already I had already shot my shot my wide because what happened was mm. the film we shot in 16, with 16 millimeter. Wow. And they told me when I got into the movie independently, like I knew we had only a million dollars to make the film, oh. uh, I knew that there would be no more reshoots, no more ways to go back into the film, anything. So that... that that's what it was. Now, Dion, one of the interesting things with this film, and I know at the premiere the other night, uh, 
our screenwriter, Eric uh, Adams, was talking about this, how the two of you approached this and how he approached it. What a lot of people don't understand about supremacy, this is based on a true incident that actually happened. And you guys stepped away from how the media was reporting things, and you put a spin on the story to tell an internalized view from the victims. That's right. Yeah, the the, um, the approach to the movie, when, when Eric first gave me the screenplay and I read it, you know, this is a year, a year, a year ago now, a year and some change. Um, I just knew that the story had to be raw and real and it had to be layered in reality. Um, and I thought the ending of or how that incident ended in that real house was so incredible I knew that I could tell the real story and it would end well. And um, so, yeah, we approached it where basically here was the approach. I don't care what people are going to think. I'm going to make this movie the way it needs to be made because this is what these people went through. And we're going to be raw and we're going to be real filmmakers and tell a real story. And that was that's how we approached it, period. You know, uh, so for the people that don't know, Give us a brief a brief synopsis of this story uh, of Garrett Tully um, and the family that he essentially took hostage. Yes, easy. Early nineteen nineties, nineteen ninety one, nineteen ninety two. Garrett Tully is released from Pelican Bay Maximum Security Prison. He had just finished doing ten years. Uh, he is the second highest ranking official in the AB, the Aryan Brotherhood. He's picked up by a young woman who works for the AB. Her job is to drive him across out of, out of the Bay Area into Bakersfield uh, to do a little bit of business. Within 24 hours, they're pulled over by a police officer on a routine stop. He gets out the car and unloads his gun in the police officer's face neck and chest area from there they are pursued people are chasing them they're in a little small city basically take a house hostage no one knows where they are they go upstairs only to find a complete black family a 70 year old black man his new wife who's 50 her three kids all dysfunctional family uh all black and from there, this is where the story ensues, and it is absolutely amazing. You know, we all know that Danny Glover is one of cinema's greatest actors, and he gives a great performance here. I'm quickly wondering, just casting Joe Anderson, I, mean, I, I was blown away by his performance. Can you just talk mm-hmm. about casting him in your film? Joe, Joe is, um, when I first seen Joe, it was really, really weird because Joe is, you know, he's from England. And um, he's a, you know, he has this real, real heavy accent. And um, wow. he did not do very well on the first audition, like, you know, as if I'm like some big director, right? But <laughs> he didn't, it didn't hit me right. Like, I didn't, I didn't believe it. And it was something about Joe. He was so committed. He, he came to me and he said, listen, Dion, if you would allow me to come back one more time, I, I think I could nail this. And he came back the next time. He scared the living hell out of everybody in the room. And at that point, I said, that's who's going to play Tully. And I'll tell you something. For anybody listening to this show, 
when people make movies, it's really cool because you kind of go on set and you see actors get ready, get are able to zone out and do different things. Yeah. This movie was absolutely crazy and incredible based on the fact that we had to have someone come in a room in front of Danny Glover, who he admired, put a gun in his face and say, I'll blow your head off, nigger. Right. And then from that place, go on for another 17 days with that type of energy. And it was scary and it was hard to do. And some days, like as a black filmmaker, I was angry. We all were angry. We would go to lunch and we would just all talk. But he is absolutely amazing. I think you will, I think you will see Joe over the next year. He's going to become one of those guys in Hollywood where everyone's like, oh, Joe Anderson, he's... You know, he's that guy. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I think yeah. that Joe really is underrated thus far, and I think it's only because people aren't really familiar with his work. But this is, you know, as great as Joe is, you know, and, you know, I make no bones about it. I think this is Danny Glover's, the finest performance of his career. Agree. Yeah. I and, agree. And, but then, I agree 100%. Yeah, think, he, um, Danny, Danny is, um, Danny, you know, it's interesting because we talk about Danny Glover. You've seen Dan, you've seen Danny in so many different movies and films and all that good stuff. And this is interesting because we haven't seen Danny like this since The Color Purple. Mm-mm. Yeah, and uh, I mean he is raw, man. He is raw. He he is such a method actor. He's using nothing but his eyes, and and you can tell what he's thinking on screen without talking. And. Um, he is so good in this movie. I mean, it's, I'm just happy to be able to have had him in the film. But more importantly, I'm happy to have had that Danny Glover. That's that's just it. And it's a Danny Glover that not many people get. Now, what really helps make this film, once you get these great performances, Dion, is you've got Rodney Taylor as your cinematographer and Rich Molina doing your editing. This how challenging was this for you as a director? Were you and Rodney, were you storyboarding? Were you shot listing? Was Richard editing as you went along? Because this is fast, this is intense, this is in close quarters, and it's all handheld. And shot on film. Yeah, you and know what, I, um, uh, yeah, Rodney is fantastic, and this was me and Rodney first met right before this movie, about oh, two weeks before we hired Rodney to come onto the film. He asked me what was my process, and uh, I'm a very I'm a I'm a different type of filmmaker. Um, I don't storyboard anything. Um, I block on the day, um, and the reason that I do it that way is because I like to approach like I feel creatively like I'm I'm even if I wrote something down today I wouldn't do it tomorrow. <laughs> um, I'm more like I like to get on set I like to feel the energy of the room I like to talk to the actors and if you've ever seen me on set I'm the guy like I'll play all the characters in front of the camera before they do it <laughs> and uh, it's, it's kind of funny but at the same time that's how we did it and yeah the entire movie is handheld shot on 16 millimeter Rodney you know he was like I think day three he was just like okay I get it and I'm like yeah man just just go with me. This is how we got to feel. This is where the camera needs to be, you know. And then we would just kind of, you know, sidebar and, and creatively talk that way. But I'm I'm all the characters, and uh, it's exhausting, but it's fun because it's just kind of how I feel the energy and and I have to be in that space. And and it's different because a lot of filmmakers do write down and 
storyboard, and I don't mind doing that stuff. I just know that I'm going to change it. <laughs> well, how now with your editing because it is so crisp and it is so sharp, and it has to be to really fuel the intensity and the emotion of what's going on. Was Richard uh, editing as you went along, or were the, did the two of you sit in the editing bay afterwards and cull through all of this film? Yeah, yeah. So basically, he came on um, probably the last couple of days of our uh, of our principal photography. Um, but what I did was I was able to sit with him and basically pitch him the entire movie. Right? He not only did he have the script, but I explained to him the integrity of the shots and why we wanted it to look that way and. You know, a lot of what happens in supremacy, which I'm so happy about, is not, you know, technically people would say, oh, it's all wrong. You know, I mean, it's just one of those movies. And and I felt like with Rich, he got it. Like when he first seen the first couple of frames, he said, oh, no, 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 I get it. He was like, I know exactly what we're doing here. And I told him the reason that I wanted that camera to move so much is because the, the house became a character in the movie. We wanted the room to feel like it was holding people. We wanted the kitchen to feel like it it released its grip just a little bit. But then when you see the scene with the child and the and the and the woman, I wanted you to be whipped right back into into the hostage of the house. And um, yeah, it, it was cool. he is so good. I tell you this, I was just blessed to be able to have any of these people work with me because I had no contacts, no nothing. It was just me raw as a filmmaker. How, how how difficult was it to assemble your creative team, to get guys like Rodney, to get guys like Richard, to get your production it, designer? It, you know, it was um, it wasn't that hard be, because I think everyone gravitated to the script and the and and what it was about. Um, it, it was surprising to me that people were up for the challenge, that people were. You know, hey, man, I got this really funny comedy. I think you have a hard time, you know, getting a bunch of people that, you know, want to do a comedy. I don't know. But when this film, I thought people was going to just be telling me no. And surprisingly, I had so many people saying, yeah, I want to do that. And I think it was because of the message. So when I went to Rodney, Rodney, you know, was an incredible cinematographer had just finished doing some stuff some festival work and he read and he said man i want to take the challenge with you i want to be challenged and um that's how rodney came and the same thing with the set designer same thing with rich molina same thing with uh shannon mcintosh who's now producing the hateful eight um these people just kind of came and was like let's 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 rock and roll dion like we believe in it we're going to help support their vision we know we don't have any money you don't have any time, but go do what you do, and that's what happened. And just curious question: Why was it such an adam- a creative choice for you to shoot on film? How? What did it? What did film give you that digital did not for your narrative? Um, I think digital is really cool. Uh, but when I was reading the material, um, I knew that the layer that I needed to be ugly. Like this, this is a movie that could not be sharp. Right. It could not be. It, it, to me, just creatively, it, it would not have worked. Uh, it needed to be rugged. It needed to have the grain that 16 millimeter gives. It needed to... I'm a huge fan of the movie Monster uh, with Charlize Theron. Yeah. And that was another one of those movies where I was just like, oh, man, like the grain. It just, it just felt down. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like even when she was smiling and having what she thought was a good day, the 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 film didn't let you feel that, you know. And and I wanted that for supremacy. I wanted the I wanted the film to become a character and, and also resonate the ugliness that Tully was spewing when he came in the house. But at the same time, I wanted it to be grainy because at the end of the day, when it is right, the the end of the day, even though the situation is overcame, I still wanted it to be the fact that people went through that on film. And anyways, it's just, uh, yeah. I'm crazy. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I, I just think 16 is so beautiful. I think oh, 35 is. is so beautiful, but yeah. at the same time, I do know that there's a lot of HD stuff going on and, but I, I wanted that. I wanted that. So what was the greatest learning curve for you as a director, Dion, stepping into supremacy? You got to think. Um, I think. I'm going to make you think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to really sit down and think. Um, I think, you know, because I'm self-taught, the only reason that I'm here is because I think God has blessed me with some creative ability and oftentimes when you are creative, you could hide behind your creativity. Um, but it doesn't challenge you as a filmmaker. And I think what makes the guys that are great, uh, when you start thinking about guys like Quentin Tarantino, you start thinking about guys like Christopher Nolan, uh, you know, uh, Antoine Fuqua, Spike Lee, when you start thinking of these guys, I think what makes you become really really good at your craft is when you really can think through scenes not creatively make them hot but think them through and i think supremacy was one of those movies where it put me on my ass a few days where i had to really sit down and go should tully really make this move and say this or should danny really move over here and say that and um that's what i think was like the greatest learning experience for me on a movie like this is because this is one of those films, and I've told you this as well, Debbie. Mm-hmm. This is one of those films that if you do not do it right, you might not ever work again. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I had to I had to think it through, and I think that's what the film taught me was the Dion stop moving so quick, really sit down and think through what you're shooting and what you want the camera to say to people. So how how fortuitous is it? Um, and how appreciative of the timing of release of Supremacy are you? I mean, this is, given what has materialized in the news, in our in our country, in the world, since just since the film premiered at LAFF, there's been a lot of change, a lot of discussion, a lot of activity going on. How fortuitous is it that this film is now being seen today, you know, this Friday, in this time? It, it's it's um i think that's just god you know like i we could we could never foresee the future a year and a half ago and know what was going to be happening uh but at the same time i'm really really happy and very excited that this movie is going to be out there as a conversation piece about racism um you know as a black filmmaker i've experienced you know, racism since a little boy, you know, from all kinds of different situations, from playing basketball to, you know, trying to break into the Hollywood business. I mean, you it's just, it's there. And it's one of those things that people don't talk about. Uh, it's a hot button. People don't want to talk about race. People don't want to talk about politics. Um, but we know it exists. And um, I think what we've seen over the last 
five or six months in, in the world is just how colorful racism really is in different markets. And I think it's time for people to actually come to the table and have conversations about it. Um, and I think this movie is just, the timing is impeccable because what I think we did really well with this story was be able to show a movie about ugly, hard-hitting racism, but also how you could battle racism with love. And I don't want to sound like that guy, you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, you know, had that just been a different type of conversation, that kid would have still been here. You know what I mean? And um, it just gets to those situations where you 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 want to start talking about it. You know, why do you feel that way about me? Why do I feel this way about you? And I feel like if we don't start talking about it, we're going to have more and more problems. But it's good that this stuff is coming to the light and people are able to, you know, really do what uh, Martin Luther King wanted us to do, which is, you know, everybody just talk it out, man, and let's talk about hugging each other instead of slugging each other. And I think that's what's really cool about this film. One of the film's best quotes or lines is from Mr. Walker when he says, fight with your mind. And I'm sure fight that, with your mind, man. Yeah, fight with your mind. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping that that resonates with a lot of young kids today because, believe it or not, you do us no good in jail. Yeah. <laughs> you oh. know what I mean? So, and that goes for everybody. I thought the Tully character was amazing based on the fact that I often get this question, which is people are like, well, how could a black filmmaker tell a story about a white supremacist? And I tell people this all the time. The movie is not just about a white supremacist. The movie is about a young man who's confused. Mm -hmm. And that young man could be Asian, Latino, black. He could be in a gang. He could be in the Mexican gang. Telly is a, is a young man who learned this behavior. And why did he learn the behavior? He learned the behavior because he was looking for love in the wrong places. And that's the same thing that happens to 75% of our kids today. Yeah. They're looking for a father figure or a mother figure, and the reality is they really just need somebody to give them a hug, pat them on the butt, and say, hey, man, I know you fell down, but let's get up and try it again. And, of and course, this is what happens. And, of course, the the one of my favorite mantras within the film comes from Danny Glover, the idea of patience. <laughs> yep. Patience. Patience, yep. Patience is king. Yep. Patience is king. We, we, and especially now, today... We're in a world where everything is right now. <laughs> you know, you want it right now. And um, it's funny. I know you guys talk to a lot of different people on, on your show and do a lot of different things. And even me, I've, I've been a victim of this my entire life. You start out in this, in this world of trying to make movies and shoot films and write stuff, and you want it now. I want it now. I want to be hot now. I want to make a big movie now. And for me, it's been a 10-year grind. And I think about only about a year and a half ago, I said, man, like, I guess it's going to come when it needs to come. And I've had to be patient to be able to get my voice heard film-wise. And uh, But, yeah, that's a very big thing is patience and just knowing you're going to get it when you're supposed to get it. Well, my friend, I can't thank you enough for calling in today and talking with us about supremacy. You know my love for the film and my love for you. <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much. You guys are wonderful. 
And if you could see me right now, I have my shirt off. That's how excited I am. <laughs> I'm standing here with no shirt on, screaming. <laughs> well, you keep screaming because Supremacy will be in theaters on Friday. Do you know when it's going to hit VOD or, or DVD, Dion? Yeah, you know what they're doing? It's a, um, it's a four-wall this, this weekend. So it's L.A., New York, Chicago, uh, Atlanta. Uh, and then it'll also be on VOD this weekend on iTunes, and then they roll it out the very next weekend, more theaters and more VOD. Oh, great. Yeah. And, of course, next weekend, the fact they're rolling it, because this weekend half the eastern seaboard may be snowed in. So yeah, that's exactly right. So people who have, you know, who can see it on iTunes, see it if you can't get to a theater, and then by next week, just get out there and see this, because it is a movie that... It will stay with you for a long time to come. Dion, thank-, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I love you guys. And anything I could do, please don't hesitate to ask me. And for all your listeners, please go see Supremacy and support independent filmmakers. It would be awesome. That's well, right. See, now, so see, next time I'll have to get you here in person, and we can do our whole independent film chant. Yeah, I'll be here, and I won't have a shirt on. <laughs> okay, I can live with that. <laughs> thank, right, you, thank you, Dion. So right. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. And we are going to take a commercial break right now, and we'll be back to talk more about song one. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we are back. Welcome back to Behind the Lens. Uh, For those of you that are just joining us, uh, we just had Dion Taylor on with us for a lengthy amount of time. Very in-depth chat. Talking about Supremacy, which is in theaters uh, and on iTunes this Friday and expanding wider next week. Um, A very powerful film. By the the way. Yes. I got to give him credit for shooting on film. That's just such a gutsy move with barely. I don't even know what the budget was. Did he say a million? Yeah, uh, it yeah. was actually a little, it was under. Oh yeah. my gosh. I mean, with that, any film, most filmmakers would have just shot it on digital and would have given up the visceral visual look for the, of the mm-hmm. film just to save money. And he just did not do that. Shooting, shooting on 16, that's amazing. And and with this film, like Dion said, uh, with, it is so important and yeah. it adds so much right. that it is on film because of the intensity of the situation, physically and emotionally. And yeah. it really, you get that gravitas. And what amazes me is cinematographer, you know, Rodney Taylor. Rodney, I mean, all handheld. Yeah. And some of the shots in this film, yeah. the dutching, the angles, in the closet shot, those people were crammed in closets. And it's just the right balance. It's not yeah. a showy film, but it's a no. really well-crafted film. It mm-hmm. just straddles that line. You know, yeah. it tells a story, and I really love the film. Yeah, yeah I, so. it, it's, it has stayed with me since last June. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it is a film that I cannot shake, that I can't get out of my head. And, you know, it is. It's a very important film, and it's not about black or white. At the end of the day, it's we're all the same. Yeah. You know, another beautifully shot film was Song One. And I don't know much about DPing or whatnot, but I'm sure 
Do you think it was really hard for them to actually shoot Brooklyn at night, all those locations, and still get a really clear image? And- I think. Well, I think the fact that that um, you know our lovely director Kate Barker Froyland, I think the fact that they were shooting digitally, yeah, that helps. That's when it helps. Because there yeah. are some in song one, the night shots are so beautiful. And now that you mention it, now I feel badly because I did not pull that audio from Kate <laughs> for uh, for everybody yeah. to hear today. Because we talked about that with her about shooting at night yeah. and capturing the night lights of the city. Now, Joe Anderson, I think, has a star making performance in yeah. Supremacy. Now. The lead actor in Song One is amazing, Johnny Flynn. Johnny Flynn, I, he just came for me. Came out, out of nowhere, right? Out of nowhere. Yeah, songwriter, musician. He's a songwriter, musician. I was not familiar with him, but he just playing the character of James Forrester. He just blows it out of the water. Easy on the eyes as well. I'll say. <laughs> yeah. 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 But- but I, I think it just this movie, Song One, just hits on all the marks. I, I love introspective Nick Drake, Elliot Smith, kind of somber acoustic mm-hmm. guitar kind of feel, and I think Song One hits those notes. And I love the soundtrack to it as well. Oh, the soundtrack is beautiful, and it's funny that you mention oh. those specific things because that's exactly what Jenny Lewis and Jonathan Rice talked about as being their influences for not only the little bits of score that they infused, but the seven original songs that they had to write. Mm. And here's what Jenny and Jonathan had to say. I scored a film last year, and I wrote a song for a Disney film many years ago. So I've got a little experience, but not much. But this, the amount of songs that we were asked to write for the film, that's a a new thing for us. What's really interesting also about the songs you wrote, they all have a, they're very cohesive, but they all have a different vibe, very eclectic blend. How did you go about writing these songs in terms of the construct of the film and the characters? Well, we had many discussions with, primarily with Kate Parker Froyland and secondarily with Anne Hathaway and Adam Shulman. We almost, Jenny and the way we approached writing the songs was almost like writing a second script because there were seven songs total to be written for the film and six of them are by this guy, James Forrester, played by Johnny Flynn. So we wanted to, we wanted him to have a cohesive sound and we talked a lot about who we who we thought he was and we saw him as a songwriter kind of in the mold of Elliot Smith or Nick Drake or Bill Fox, guys like Bonnie that, Bonnie Verb, and uh, just kind of set about kind of creating his character within within, the, within that. But we're talking about two songwriters writing for from the perspective of one man, so maybe that's what you're hearing. Because mm-hmm. totally. a lot of the songs unfolded differently where I would start something on the piano mm-hmm. and I'm, of course, writing... When I sit down to write for myself, I'm writing from a female perspective. So I kind of had to shift my mindset to write for two male characters. Because it's and that's a good point that Jenny makes. Definitely a great point. Um, taking songwriting from a different perspective, gender perspective. Um, uh, regarding the soundtrack, yeah. there's two songs not written by uh, Jonathan or Jenny. Um, the first one I really love, the Nina Simone track, My Baby Just Cares For Me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the second one is an America tune that I've never heard called I Need You. And that's played throughout the Mary Steenburgen and Hathaway sequence. Both great songs. If you're interested in checking out the soundtrack or downloading it, those are 
two tracks that are must, okay, must I, listen to. I, I, I'm sitting here just in shock. You have never heard that song by to. America. Yeah. I, w- they've also done what? Sister Golden Hair? Yeah. Into a Highway, but I've never heard of, I Need uh-huh. You. Sound kind of bready. But I, yeah, I it, it yeah. definitely has a very bread kind of three dog night, soft yeah. three dog night yeah. bread sound. But that was one of the, the one of the songs oh. of my youth. Oh, really? It's it was de- a go to song for you. And well, no, as, it was, as far as like connecting with people and whatnot. It was not a go to song for me. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, but no, that was one of the. Oh, it, it was a staple. It, it was, was a staple. Really? Okay. it was a staple of the, of the pop music catalog. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. it fits really squarely into place in song one too very emotional moment it was actually one of the one of the featured songs every time america did a concert they may still use that okay this is what happens when you've been around a while (laughs) (laughs) yeah so these are both great two completely different films but both stories from really uh, pointed uh, personal filmmakers, and that's what we really want to cover: is these really personal journeys. That's filmmakers. that's exactly it. And you know, part of that personal journey is also the collaborative nature. Yeah. And with Song One, Jenny talks a lot about the collaborative process of songwriting mm. and songwriting in the context of the film, because it's not just Jenny, it's not just Jonathan, it's not just Jenny and Jonathan, but then you get Kate in the mix, and you right. get. Anne Hathaway in the mix, and then you get executive producer Jonathan Demme in the mix. And here's Jenny's take on collaboration. Well, I think the collaborative process can be a little daunting, but I think you learn how to become a good collaborator, and you have to proceed with a certain amount of openness to critique. Because we were creating these songs based on our idea of this character that Kate wrote. So it didn't always resonate with her in the right way. Um, And we would sort of send them off, you know, in emails to Jonathan Demme, who we're huge fans of, and, and to Adam and Annie and Kate. And sometimes, you know, the songs didn't work and we would have to go back to the drawing board. But we would start songs separately often and then come together with the idea of the character where Jonathan would finish an idea or I would finish one of his ideas. So, collaboration all around. By the way, we don't collaborate. You're, I, I, I actually, you know, follow your lead, like I said before. And well, I, I know this, this surprises steer a, the ship. But you know. I know this <laughs> surprises a lot yeah. of people. Even when we're doing roundtable interviews together, we just feed naturally off yes. of each other. We don't yes. collaborate. Seri- I'm a parasite. I feed off you. So <laughs> I'm the shark. You're the remora. Oh, oh, Is right. that okay. it? Yes, Is that yes, it? yes. I prefer but, that. But you know, and yeah. now you know. For people that are wondering, no, even we have managed to be color coordinated when we show up <laughs> yes, for set. Yes. Um, we have not planned this. It's just great minds think alike. We both love cinema. You a little bit more. You much more actually because you cover the the I'm, festival circuit. You watch nine hundred movies a week. It seems I spent three hours doing uh, the TCM party tweet yesterday. A oh, lot wow. of it about um, what movie did you guys watch? Uh, the big one yesterday because it was shot at MGM. Yeah. Um, Actually, part of it was shot where my house now stands. Culver City's MGM, right? <laughs> Culver City. Um, uh, yeah, it was the Angela Lansbury, um, oh. Judy Garland, the Harvey Girls. I have never seen that movie. That is a must-see. It was one of the films that was done in the later years of the Arthur Freed unit at MGM. Oh, wow. Uh, and interestingly, um, and I'll probably, we'll probably, the audience will hear it one day, 
when I interviewed Angela Lansbury a couple of years ago at TCM, that was one of the things that she always gets a big laugh out of is they dubbed her singing voice in the Harvey Girls. That makes no sense because her voice obviously is indelible. Is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just scared of her because of the Manchurian candidate. No. <laughs> but just remember, she's Jessica Fletcher. I, 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 yes. Yes. Of course. Of course. So. Yeah. yeah. But that was, that was several hours yesterday doing the TCM party tweets. And for anybody listening, mm. if you love classic films and you watch TCM, you can always hop on Twitter, hashtag TCM party, and you can join in the conversation with other classic film lovers that are on as we live tweet during you know during films with trivia with technical information commentary about dialogue uh it's a lot of fun and a lot of engagement and it's a shared movie going experience even though we're not all in the theater together movie buffs from around the world movie buffs from around the world and that's one of the beautiful things about tcm is that it's if the time is showing at three o'clock on the eastern seaboard it's showing at noon here so it's showing at the same time on both, you know, so everybody can participate. You know what you should do? One day you should just do a TCM party 24 hours to. straight well, and just not even sleep. <laughs> that would be great. How many movies you can cover in one day without sleeping? Oh, my God. I don't know. Will McKinley? Are you up for that? Nice. Um, nice. <laughs> Kelly Pratt, Will McKinley? Yeah. They'll they'll weigh in on that one, I'm sure. Speaking of very quickly weighing in, uh, for the visual aids, you have two books up here can you just briefly we have to uh, yes today we brought visual aids we have the hollywood film music reader which oh. is a great book with interviews and archival things from composers andre previn um hope- Adolf deutsch i mean it's just you know waxman uh bernard herman aaron oh bernard Cop- herman yeah aaron copeland nice and copeland. ironically on the cover is none other than Debbie Reynolds, who just got her SAG Lifetime Achievement Award last wow. night. Wow, nice. So, and then we also have, this is a great book by David, David Thompson, Moments That Made the Movies, and some of the most indelible photographs from films. Oh, beautiful. Over the, you know, for decades, and it's it's stunning. There's trivia, there's, you know, great film, you know, anecdotes. It's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful book for any film buff out there. I also love Thompson. He also did that book, A Biographical Dictionary of Film. I have that too. It's, he's it's the man. Is that not wonderful? David, so yeah, David Thompson, if you're in a bookstore, just look for his stuff. Google him. Go to Amazon. Just whatever he has, buy it. He's a true cinephile slash critic. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And then our other, we'll talk about our other visual aids later, but these are all screeners that I'll talk about them now. These are all screeners. When you are a member of Film Independent, you get to vote for the Spirit Awards, which is coming up the day before Oscars. And we will be covering this on our February 16th show, our Spirit Award Oscar show, pre-show. But in order to make sure that all of the members can vote based on actually seeing the film, in addition to setting up screenings of nominated films for the Spirit Awards, they send out DVD packets and screeners. So I am sitting here, even though I have already seen everything, as a member of Film Independent, I got my packet of my screeners, some of which I know Greg has been looking at and that I know our sound engineer, Brian Leon, has been looking at and Lydia has been looking at. So 
It's a great way to catch up on movies. I think a membership is now $90 a year. You get oh. to go to all of the film-independent functions at LACMA, other benefits. You get discounted tickets um, and advance notice for L.A. Film Festival. And you get to vote for the Spirit Awards. And you get these lovely things. And you get these That's lovely things. Nice. So, I mean, who doesn't want to be able to sit at home and watch, you know, John Ridley's Jimmy is all, Jimmy all by my uh, Jimmy, huh? Jimmy, all is by, is my, by side. my side. Jimmy. I can't talk when I get Which excited. Which I haven't seen yet. I haven't seen I, Jimmy. When I get excited about something, this is a wonderful film. Okay. So. Obvious Child is Obvious Child. one of my favorites from last year. You know, Little Accidents, a wonderful film. I just interviewed the filmmaker Sarah Colangelo the other week. Cool. Absolutely stunning, appropriate behavior, Citizen Four, the documentary, Selma. You get all of these. So join Film Independent. But now we're going to take a, another quick commercial break, and then we'll be back and talk about strange magic. We're going to end with magic, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is the number one newspaper in Culver City, covering local news, politics, and community events, with sports by Mitch Chortkoff and movie reviews by Debbie Lynn Elias. Culver City Observer is the place to go to be in the know. When you think Culver City and the heart of Screenland, think Culver City Observer. When you think movies and movie reviews, think Culver City Observer. Culver City Observer, a division of Arizona Newspaper Group, is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. We are back behind the lens. Me, and, Greg. And you're in front of behind the lens because you're the host and creator uh, of the show. Here we go again. So, and by the way, I'm very happy because our filmmaker slash DP slash everything, Lydia, called us both intelligent. Yes. I would agree yeah. for you. Me, I, I would probably by no, default. You know, it's always, it's always lovely. You know, and Lydia w- was paid the highest compliments by Dion Taylor this week after she shot... Uh, uh, the Q and A I moderated at the at the premiere, and then okay. she did a full edit package. She did a three camera shoot of a Q and A, and Dion is in love with it. Do you ever get nervous during while you're moderating? Because if I ever did that, I would probably be a puddle of you nah. know what's really nah. Oh, there's people looking at you, nah. ba- on bated breath. They want your opinion on something. They nah. don't want really. Nah. never. Okay, nah. cool hand, Luke ish. Okay, nah, nice. you know, I like it. it's like when you get to be my age, you fall on your face enough times that you, okay. it really doesn't you matter. You just let it go. You and just, just let it go. Let it rip. Okay, nice. So, Strange Magic, I have to give a huge, huge, huge thanks to Tracy at Lucasfilms and Kara over at Disney, who got me this incredible interview with the film's writer-director, Gary Rydstrom, off the bat. Um, hmm. Gary is currently in Singapore working on another film for Lucasfilm and Disney. Um, and he took time out to talk to me about Strange Magic. Strange Magic opened this weekend. Um, a lot of people, all I can say is ignore 90% of the critics out there. If you love Moulin Rouge, if you love Baz Luhrmann, if you love animation, if you love George Lucas, Strange Magic is the film to see. Think an animated Moulin Rouge. And as I keep saying, Strange Magic is music to my heart. Um, this is from the heart and soul of George Lucas. The We have a dark kingdom. We have the dark forest. We have the fairy kingdom. 
We have good, we have bad, we have dark, we have light. We have redemptive characters. We have a strong female akin to a certain Princess Leia. And then you have epic myth-making kind of journeys, maybe? We have very much so. um, Fantastical creatures. And it's all told through music, much as Bo- what exactly what Baz Luhrmann did with Moulin Rouge. Mm. And needless to say, it comes as no surprise that Gary Rydstrom called on Boz's music supervisor, Marius DeVries, to do the same thing musically for Strange Magic. And since we got a, a theme going here of music today... Um, we're going to let you hear part of my exclusive interview with Gary Reinstrom talking about bringing music to Strange Magic. You know, the musical part was new to me, and I, I was a little scared going into it. scared enough to direct an animated film, but on top of it, the musical, I don't know nothing about musical, so, but um, it was fun to learn, and Marius is, uh, uh, has a great sense of musical structure, and, you know, and I especially loved how to figure out how to get in and out of the songs and, and um, you know, structure it so they don't sort of slam in and surprise you in that way that sometimes you can do in musicals. Oh, we're singing, you know, and that was a fun thing to try to figure out how to weave the, the singing and the dialogue from head to tail. What was the learning curve like that for you? Because it is, it's a very seamless flow and you always have a haunting, you know, undercurrent of a song leading up to a full-on song. And that, that undercurrent is really, there's especially sneaky one where before we, we hit Strange Magic, the song Strange Magic, that comes out of score. And the score starts to um, have that da 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 da, the little falling mm-hmm. phrase of Strange Magic. And I love doing that because uh, um, it, it, it helps gently lead you into the song. Um, and Marius is doing that in score throughout, sort of, you know, anticipating something um, or, or reminding us of. of much fun it is especially when you get into the songs that are in here with everything from elvis presley to i think some dion warwick we've got heart we've got the doors Mm. i mean it is an incredible array and everything is put together with the songs worked in like a a traditional musical as part of the dialogue Mm. and gary talked about some of the songs and uh that were used Back to George Lucas's initial idea, he wanted to tell a, a love story, fairy tale through songs. Mm-hmm. Song, so um, that's what we did. And so, you know, we—I I don't remember ever, you know, throwing out a song or changing a song on the basis of money. Wow.
his thing is using songs like Can't Help Falling in Love in, a, in different ways throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And Three Little Birds. And interestingly, Three Little Birds, you would not think kids know it. And apparently that is like one of the hot songs that kids mm-hmm. love, as opposed to something more pop like Crazy in Love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, this the film is just fun all the way around. The animation is beautiful. It's photorealism blended. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, we're getting our countdown. Um, very quickly before we go, I just want to mention this coming Friday, you can view in your movie theater Oscar shorts, all your Oscar-nominated shorts, your live action, your animation, and your documentaries um, will be in theaters so see that before the Oscars next week. We're going to talk about we're going to talk with the director of Alien Outpost. Hopefully, some people from Wild Card and Jason Statham and uh, the Backstreet Boys. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>